I'm going to read the passage uh, for us on which the teaching is based this morning. If you don't mind, and if you're able to, I'd invite you to stand as we read this passage from Galatians 6 together. Paul writes, Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the, uns- or the circumcised do not keep the law themselves, and yet they want to be circumcised, you to be circumcised, in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, we're uh, in the second last week of our our study in Paul's letters to the Galatians. So next week we'll be doing like a wrap-up kind of summary of everything that we've talked about. But this is the last passage that we're uh, in for, um, for this series. And this passage is mobilized really by a question, by this question, what do you boast in? What do you boast in? Now, this is not a word probably that you used this week. I know I didn't, except for in preparing for this sermon. And so uh, what does this word boast actually mean? Well, in the Greek, the the word means uh, what do we actually put into a place of glory? Again, probably not a word that we use a lot every day in our lives. It just means something that's weighty. What are the things that are heavy in your life? What are the things, where are the places, as uh, Archbishop William Temple said, where are the places that your mind go when you have a free moment? What are those things that you care about? What are the things that you worry about in your lives? The things that work on you. The other way we might say it is, uh, in our culture today, what are the things that you're a free promoter for? What are the things that you would just promote for free? Uh, If you spend enough time with me, you'll know that I'm a free promoter of the greatest hockey team in the world, the Edmonton Oilers. And uh, I'll just tell you about it. They've never paid me any money. They are welcome to if they wanted to, but they they choose continually choose to not reply to my emails. Um, But I'll just tell you about them. And I've spent a lot of money on them in my life, but I just love them. I just promote them for free. My wife and I, we live, we've lived in Gastown for many years, and now we live in Strathcona, which is just adjacent to Chinatown. And whenever we get to go on a date, we find ourselves moving over to the Alibi Room, which is this awesome little spot in Gastown, right on the edge of Main Street. We've paid a lot of money to this place. Once again, they have never paid us any money, as far as I know. But I'm a free promoter of this place. I just love it there. they got the best craft beer list, in my opinion, in all of Vancouver. And so we just love to go. We're a free promoter of this place. What about you? What are the things that you're a free promoter for? That's what Paul's saying. What do you boast in? Or the third thing is you could think of is like this. What, what, what do you rejoice in? What lights you up? If we're having a quick conversation over a ping-pong potluck later, what are the things that your, your face is going to light up? You're going to get passionate about when we start talking together. And that's really what Paul is asking. What are the things that we boast in? Now, I just want to add two more things about boasting or or this idea uh, that are inherent in this passage. The first is that in my research, one person said, you can boast on something about something with or without reason. With or without reason. So you can, it can be something that you get to mentally. I boast in this because this, this, and this. But he also says you can get there without reason. We can glorify things, we can honor things in our lives, we can become promoters of them, and we're not even really sure why. Because they don't function at the level of our minds, they function more at the level of our gut, at the level of story. And we just freely promote them, we're freely excited about them, and we could never really explain why you want that thing. So that's the first thing to notice about uh, boasting, that it can happen at the level of subconscious rather than conscious for Paul. 
The second thing uh, is that everybody boasts in something. Um, there's maybe no person who said this better than the late author David Foster Wallace. And I'll just read this. I read this probably once every six months, but it's just, he just says it the best. So this person is not at all a follower of Jesus, but here's what he writes. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism because there's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as not putting something on a pedestal, not glorifying, not glorying in something. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Again, I want to remind you, this person's not following, he he didn't follow Jesus in his life. But he's pointing out another facet of what it means to glory in something, that we all have things we glory in. We all worship. The question just is what? So, in this passage, what do people glory in? What do people boast in? Let's look again at verse 13. It says, For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. Now, we need to do a little bit of uh, context here, especially if you're new. Um, I'm sure you didn't come here because you're like, I bet you they'll talk about circumcision this morning. That would be great. Um, so let's give a little context of what's going on in here. Paul, in this, uh, this, this, the group of people that Paul is writing to, so Paul is this Jewish Jesus follower, and he, he got really sick. And so he ended up staying in this place called Galatia. It's mostly people who are not Jewish, so different ethnic background for him, which back then was a really big deal. But these people, as he tells them about Jesus and what Jesus has done in, in the world and in his life, they, they start to follow Jesus. And the, in Galatians, it says that the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwelt in them and changed their lives. And so Paul's like, even though you're not Jewish, okay, here we go. God is working in your life. So Paul leaves, and he leaves this small little church of, of non-Jewish Jesus followers. But these other Jewish people come probably from Jerusalem, so they follow Jesus, but they're also Jewish people, and they come to Galatia after Paul leaves, and they say, like, look, this guy Paul, we're just not really very sure about him. He's kind of a bit of a renegade. So it's great that you believe in God. It's great that you follow Jesus. It's great that the Spirit has come on you. But you also need to be to be true follower of God, to be part of his family, you need to do the things that are written about in the Jewish Holy Scriptures, in God's Word. So we need you to start eating kosher, for example. We need you to start celebrating our holy days, and we need you to get circumcised, all the men among you. Now, I'm sure there's some good motivations for these Jewish missionaries coming to do this, but in this passage, Paul lists several negative motivations for them to come and do this. And and he says, we'll just look at one of them, because it pertains to our topic this morning. He says, they want these people to get circumcised because they want to boast in the flesh. They want to boast in the flesh. Now, this is an absolutely bizarre statement for us, that people are like, I want to go get other people circumcised so that I can be like, that was awesome. That was fantastic. It just sounds crazy to us. But I want to remind us that this is a 2,000-year-old book. It's a very different time. And so to give some background to understanding this, we have to understand a story from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's from uh, 1 Samuel 18, and it's the story about this guy named David, who is a, a revered figure, if you don't know anything about God's story. He was like one of the, the best people. He has lots of flaws, but people really looked up to him. And he wants to marry this guy named Saul. His, he's the king at the time, and Saul offers him to marry uh, his daughter. And does anyone know what the price is for him to go and marry the daughter? Yes, Marissa, gr- gold star for the sword drill. A hundred foreskins, a hundred Canaanite foreskins. 
And the, and the thinking here, I know you're, I could just, I love this uncomfortability that I'm just sensing. It's just so good. One of my favorite TV shows ever is Arrested Development, and it just makes you kind of cringe, and I just love it. Or the UK office. Fantastic. Okay, so Paul, Saul's thinking is this. If I send this guy David to go and circumcise all these uh, Canaanites, which probably means he has to kill them in order to get their foreskins, um, then he's going to die. And I don't like this guy. I want him to die anyways. David very happily goes, kills all these guys, supposedly, and brings back what I'm assuming is a bag of, of foreskins to Saul, and they, uh, you know, then they get married. And so this is the story, and you're like, I think we skipped this one in Sunday school, except for Marissa. I don't know what Sunday school you went to, but all the rest of us are like, yeah. And then for good reason. We don't want your kids coming home and being like, so tell me about the bag of foreskins. Um, okay, but you've got to understand that this story is reverberating for these people because this is their scriptures. This is a very old story. So they're thinking the same way. If I go to this place, Galatia, with all these foreigners, I can come back to my people and I can say, hey, I did the same thing that David did. I converted all of these people, and here's the evidence. So that's the situation in Galatia. Obviously very different than our situ- situation here today. If you have a bag of foreskins here, please come talk to me after, and we'll find some people that will really be able to, to help you out. Okay? But we've got to remember that everybody worships. That's what Paul is saying. Everybody boasts in something. So what, what do we revere? What might be the things that we want to lift up in our society? So, I want to introduce you to some art this morning. Because remember, the things that we boast in, they function probably at more of a subconscious level than a conscious level. So this art is made by this guy. His name is Jeff Koons. And uh, he's very, very famous. And some of you have probably seen this art. He's got a lot of pieces, but this is probably the most famous one. We can go to the next one here. So, what I want you to do... How many people have seen this? We've seen it? Okay. I want you to turn to somebody next to you, preferably someone you didn't come with. Quickly introduce yourself, and I want you to just discuss two quick questions. What did you notice? What do you notice when you look at this? And I want to just say oh, one thing. I kept the picture of the people in it so you can see the scale. I've seen these, these balloon dogs. They're massive. Like, they would fill, like, half of the space in here. They're super huge. Okay, so imagine that scale in this room. So what do you notice about this, and what do you feel? This is just... Looking at art, there's no wrong answers, okay? What do you think? What do you feel? So, turn to a neighbor. I'll give you a couple minutes. What do you notice? What do you feel? And then we'll come back and we'll discuss together. All right, so I'm going to bring us on back. While I do, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to... One of the reasons I really like Kuhn's work is because uh, our family was in L.A. uh, at the beginning of last year during spring break, and we got to go and see some of his work. There's my daughter, uh, and uh, so this is the tulips that he also makes. He makes a bunch of different things. You can go check it out later. Not now on your phones, uh, but you can check it out later. Okay, so this is, uh, we'll see if we, this works out. What did you see? Remember, there's no wrong answers, just stupid answers. So just, no, I'm just kidding. What did we see? Anything, anything that we noticed about the balloon dog? The nose, okay. Yeah, the end of the balloon that's there. One of the things that's really interesting is this is made of metal. And it is, I don't know anything about like metallurgy or, uh, you know, anything to do with metal. Obviously, I can't even think of the words that you need to say to make things with metal. It is a stunning piece of work. A stunning piece of work. Like the craftsmanship is unbelievable. Good, great. Anything else? What about the, the, like, the vibe? 
Don't, just don't think rocket science here. Just think the... Th- playful, that's right. Playful or fun. So one of the things that people say about his objects is that they're fun. These are just balloon dogs. Or he makes tulips or balloons. Like, these aren't swastikas, right? They're not just, like, this terrible object that you have to look at. And Coons himself says that one of the goals of, of people coming to look at his art, what he wants people to say is just one word. Wow. That's what he wants you to wander into the room and just say, wow. No judgment, no interpretation needed. Just keep it light. Have a good time. Take a selfie. Just keep it fun, playful. Great, good. What else? Shiny. Yes, good. Very good. Shiny. Listen to what Kuhn says about the balloon dog. The balloon dog is a wonderful object, which is always a nice thing to say about your own art, I guess. Um, It wants to confirm the observer in their existence. He says, I often work with reflecting, mirroring materials because they automatically raise the self-confidence of the viewer. And if you stand right in front of the object, you're reflected in it and you're assured of yourself. The core is always the same. Learn to trust yourself in your own history. The observer is meant to feel their own love of life. Puts you at the center. And if you ever get to go see a Coons, you'll just see that that's what everybody is doing, standing beside it, taking a picture of themselves in the side of the balloon dog. Good, so it's fun, it's shiny. Anything else? Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rhonda was saying she used to work for a magician who used to make these all the time, right? And they're at parties, right? A fun thing. You know, no one's ever making these at funerals, um, at least none that I've been at. Uh, I don't know, but, you know, you, you had an interesting experience with your uh, church stories. Maybe at their church they were making balloon dogs at funerals, I don't know. The last thing I'll say about this, so it's fun, it's shiny. The third thing that a lot of people say, and this is a key word for us, is it's smooth. It's unbelievably smooth. There's, no, there's almost no seams in his work. It's just one big piece of metal. And a lot of commentators would say that about his work that it, it means that there's no negativity in it. There's no space for, for negativity. One person said, his art is perfect for a society of positivity which feels disgust at any kind of negativity. That's why one of the reasons. So smooth, fun, and shiny. That's the reasons I think that, uh, that Coons has become one of the most famous uh, um, artists of our time. And one of these balloon dogs sold for a record $58 million. So I was trying to get one here, but it was just a slightly out of our, our price range for this morning. But his art, I think, has become so famous because he's put his finger on the story that we live in. What we want, what we boast in, where our minds go when we have free time is that we want a smooth, fun, and shiny life. That's, that's the story that we live in. That's the water that we swim in. Or maybe better said, we don't want our lives to be bumpy in any way. Or boring. Or matte. That would be the worst. And we may not want this balloon dog, and probably most of us would never pay $58 million for it, but I think our culture is defined by the balloon dog life. That we're moving in this direction, that this is our deepest desire for life to be smooth, fun, and shiny. It's what we glory in. Now, what's the problem with it? Is there any problem, or should just, we just chase balloon dogs? Is that great? Well, there's a, a Korean-born German philosopher. His name is Byung Chul Han. And he uh, is also not a follower of Jesus, but he points out four, lots of criticisms of this vision of the good life, of boasting in this kind of life. And I just want to give you quickly four things that he says. The first is that he says that this is false. He says our desire is to smooth out the blemishes of our lives. 
using things like filters and chasing balloon dogs is actually just not true of who we are. That we're always being forced to hide something about ourselves and about the world that we live in if we just chase this kind of life and we put it up at the pedestal. It'll come at the cost of truth. The second thing he says is that it's empty. I want to show you another work here of uh, Kuhn's. It's called The Balloon Venus. Uh, his uh, version, it's a version of a very old sculpture of a, of a goddess, uh, the goddess of love, Venus. Now, guess what's inside of this thing? All the rest of his sculptures are empty, except for this one, with love, yes. All the, all the, uh, all the other ones are also filled with love, actually. This one is filled with the secret of our times, Dom Perignon. Bubbly, you can see on this next picture. And as we approach Christmas, which I know is a frightening thought, I, I think of the juxtaposition between these two photos here. We looked at one of them earlier in our series on Galatians. One is the picture of Madonna with child, a picture of Mary. What does her life signal? Smooth? When the angel comes to her, is he like, hey, life's going to be just smooth sailing from here, young lady? No, it's an unwed mother who's going to go through a very difficult time. That her life's not going to be fun. It's not characterized by a lot of fun. At the, end of her, at the end of her son's life, she's standing there with him on a cross. It's not going to be shiny because it's not about her. It's about the child that she carries. Juxtapose that with the balloon Venus. Smooth, shiny, filled with bubbly. And, and Han encourages us to think, which life is full, though? Which life is empty and which one is full? And I would put for you that life of being a champagne holder is very different than being a life filled with Jesus. So he says it's an empty life. The third is that it's alienating, he says, this vision of the good life, the balloon dog life. He says the smooth, fun, shiny life is ultimately about us, and he quotes another philosopher named Simone Vale, and she says this, beauty, which is what he's concerned about, the ultimate goods, truth, beauty, love, the good life, they require us to give up our imaginary position at the center of the world. Beauty requires us to give up our imaginary position at the center of the world. Because when we put ourselves at the center, when we put our stories there, it's fundamentally alienating. The Bibles would say that's alienating to ourselves. It's alienating to our relationship with others because we end up just being in competition with them. It's alienating to the world. And Han is saying it's alienating to the sense of beauty. You will never actually get a sense of beauty if you put yourself in the center. So the balloon dog life is, is alienating, and finally, that you get stuck. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about as I've read through Han again this week is he says this balloon dog life offers no invitation for growth or transformation. All it encourages you is to say, wow, and take a selfie of yourself. And, and so what you end up is you end up stuck, stuck in patterns of adolescence, along that your life ends up just being this long, delayed adolescence as you, as you pursue the smooth and the fun and the shining. Here's what he says. A longing for natural beauty is ultimately the longing for a different mode of being, to transform, to become someone else. He says, another altogether nonviolent form of life. Interestingly, Han says, this beautiful, cute little balloon dog is a, is a form of violence on the kinds of people we are called to become because it keeps us stuck as children. So this is the life that we live and the, and the problems with it when we boast in this kind of balloon dog life, the smooth life. And, and this guy's, again, he's not a follower of Jesus. He's just a philosopher. Maybe he's saying this life is empty, it's alienating, and you'll get stuck, and it's not true to the world. 
So what's the opposite for Paul? What, what does he invite us to boast in? I'm going to show you another picture. It's going to be fairly jarring. But it's by a, another artist named Matthias Grunwald. It's called the Issenheim Altarpiece. So I, I want you to take it in. And again, I want you to turn back to that person. What do you see? What do you notice? What do you feel when you look at this piece? All right, so I'll invite you to close up your conversations. A much more subdued reaction uh, in, in the community. I share this, this picture with you not simply for shock value, um, but because we have become anesthetized uh, to what this would, what a cross, which Paul refers to in this passage, would mean to the first century hearers of this letter. You know, we have like literally one right here, and probably you didn't even notice as you came in. But if this was a church 2,000 years ago, it would be the first thing people noticed. They'd be like, why in the world is that there? Um, Because in Jesus' day, the crucifixion and the cross, they were treated with absolute horror. They were a form of death that was designed to humiliate people and to degrade them. And it was reserved for mostly slaves and rebels. And and it's a highly symbolic form of death. Uh, everything that they did had a lot of thought behind it because basically the idea was if a slave wanted to become a master and they kind of tried to, to, to have a coup or, for example, a rebel tried to take the position of a leader, they would say like, oh, you want to be raised up? You want to be lifted above your station? We'll do it for you. We'll put you up. And so we'll put you up on a cross. If you know the story of Jesus, that's what they do to him. They put him up there and they mock him. Well, you think you're the king of the Jews. And so it's, it's very, very symbolic and also um, humiliating. It's also made for the degrading of the body, psychological and physical torment. And you can't see uh, from where you, you uh, are, are, are sitting right now, but this has like marks all over Jesus' body. There are sores. It's quite a disgusting picture of the death of Christ. And in fact, Grunwald, and as far as I know, um, not that I'm an art specialist or anything, no artist has been able to actually depict what happened truly on the cross because the human, they would be stripped utterly naked. And Grunwald and no person have have been willing to depict that in a piece of art because it's just too humiliating. It's too humiliating, but that was the reality of what was happening on the cross. Now, again, I don't say that to shock you. I just, I want to say it to to actually focus on what, to hear the words that Paul is saying next in their context. Listen to what he says. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you heard this in the first century, you would just be utterly appalled. It would be completely nonsensical to you. And Paul says the same thing in in 1 Corinthians. He says, yeah, the the Jewish people, they like power. That was their hopes and expectations for their Savior to come, is that he would come and he would destroy the Roman nation that were oppressing them. He would do it in a powerful way and he would bring the Jewish people back to their uh, rightful place at the center of, of the world. And then he says, Greeks, they love reason and rationality and, and the beautiful form of the human body. That's what, they, that's what they revered. That's what they boasted in. But what does God give us when he gives us the cross? He gives us a king who's not powerful at all. He gives us someone who is utterly weak, being destroyed, being sucked in under the currents, under the undertow of the powers of the world. And he gives us a king who is not super wise or the perfect male form, but a situation that's literally just, it's almost unintelligible 
It's almost completely devoid of reason and rationality. And what we see on the cross is the male body, not perfected, but disintegrating. You can see by the the ways he's depicted the the arms and the neck, it's just almost unhuman. And so they would say, how how could you ever boast in this? Like, you didn't even want to look at this. How could I say this is the most important thing in my life, that this is the glory, this is the center, that I would go and just tell people about this? And Paul and other authors would say there's three characteristics of people that learn to boast in the Christ because it's so unnatural that there's three kinds of characteristics or three kinds of people that boast. The first is people who fail at the balloon dog life. The people who fail at the balloon dog life. You know, this piece of art was not hung, it's not famous because it's a great piece of art, although it's beautiful um, or like amazingly uh, done. And it's not famous because it was in a famous place like the Sistine Chapel. This piece of art was commissioned in a hospital, in a hospice. And they asked, the, the, they asked an artist to come and paint a piece of art that would speak to the people who were there, which is people who had the plague and who had leprosy. And so the artist painted this piece. And here I want to show you just the next picture. This, you can get a sense of how big it is. And the stories are that the, these, these lepers and these people who had the plague, were cast out of their own society, would just come to the chapel of this hospice and they would stand in front of this piece of art for hours. And sometimes they would kneel. Because this art, although it is disgusting and terrible and so difficult, to these people said something different as well. It said that this God knows what it's like to be rejected. This God knows what it's like to have his body break down. This God knows what it's like to be left behind, to be laughed at, to be scorned, to be sent away. This God knows and understands what each of those people are going through. That's the story of the cross, that I become like you. I take on the the king of the universe, the God of all, the one who is most beautiful, takes on the worst of what we have to offer as humans. I become like you. The cross of Christ tells us that our Jesus can minister not only in the mountaintops and the great moments of our lives, but also at the lowest, as the poet Virgil says, in the tears of things. Maybe the place where our our Jesus can minister the most clearly to us. And so it's for those of us who don't try to just smooth out the world continually, but acknowledge that there's darkness. That we aren't going to live in falsehood, but we are going to acknowledge there are beautiful and amazing things in the world. We got to welcome solace here this morning. Such an honor, such a joy. But there's also darkness in our world. And for Paul, who wrote this letter to the Galatians, that's what it took in his life. He was just doing great. He probably had many bags of foreskins. I don't know how many. I did some research. I can't tell you. He was doing really great in his life. He was just knocking it out of the park. But he had to become blind. The darkness literally had to overtake him in order for him to see the beauty and the hope that might be found in Jesus and maybe you haven't failed at the balloon dog life. Maybe your life is, just pump, life is just pumping helium in your balloon dog, and it's just flying high, and you're doing so fantastic. And that's great. I'm happy for you. But to be a follower of Jesus and to allow the cross to take central place in our lives, we have to acknowledge that there is darkness. And I think for me, that's just probably... I'm a bit of a pessimist, so it's always been easy for me. But... I think for us in our world right now, it's probably one of the easiest times, at least in my life, to just acknowledge that there's darkness in the world. 
Like this vision of life of balloon dogs just, you know, in your garage, balloon dogs everywhere in your life, I just think that's unrealistic for most of us. We know that that can't be our truth and our reality. And so I don't know how you can live in our world and have no recognition that there's darkness, that everything can't be smoothed out and fun and shiny. And, you know, one of the best examples of this, actually, in, in my own just conversations with people, is talking to youth. It's one of the places where this juxtaposition comes most clearly. Because you go and you chat with youth, and you're like, you know what's the future for you, buddy? Balloon dogs. What's it going to be? Is it going to be a pink balloon dog, a red balloon dog? Oh, the future's ahead of you. Rainbow balloon dogs. You've just got so many balloon dogs ahead. The best days are right now. Live it up. And what do most youth feel? Balloon dog? Yay! Deep anxiety. Depression. And, and we... Those of us who are older, you know, I'm 40 now, in the latter years of my life. Um, I, I like, we can't really comprehend, because we're like, no, 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 these are the years, man. Pump the balloon dog. And they're just like, I just, I feel so anxious. There's a darkness. They, they might not be able to articulate it either, right? It might be living at that level of story for them. But we see it when we deal with youth and kids, younger people. They're, they're the canaries in the cold mine for what's going on in the story of our lives, that the balloon dog life's not working. So we have to acknowledge that there's darkness in our world. And if there is, then the question becomes, how do we overcome it? Can we overcome it? And there's lots of different ways to do that. Some people and lots of things in our world are just pump, pump, pump the balloon dog. Get more helium in there. Believe in that more. But Jesus invites us to a different answer with the cross. Which is to say that darkness is overcome by the power of suffering love. The darkness is overcome by the power of suffering love. Some of us, when we see the cross, we think of a story in our mind, and it repels us for a different reason, because we think of something like divine child abuse. That's not what Paul is referring to here at all. Instead, for him, the story is this, that Jesus is the representation of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. That's what the Bible says over and over again. And when we see this picture, what we see is a story, and a picture of Jesus who cares deeply about the darkness. His greatest desire is to shine light in the darkness. And the way that he does that is not by starting a blog or a YouTube channel. He doesn't go and just start slaying Romans, you know, like they didn't have AK-47s at that time. What if he just showed up with an AK-47 and just blasted some Romans out? Could have done that. He doesn't take political power. Rather, he does this. He moves his life into the heart of darkness, allowing himself to be crushed by the powers of darkness so that the light of Christ might show. And that there might be a path out of this darkness, not up and to the right, but down through the cross, that we might become new creations. That light could shine in the darkness, and we could say with the resurrection of Christ that no matter how dark your life is, no matter how dark things feel, that the darkness will never overcome. That's what the story of the the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. So do you want to know how justice happens? Are you a person who's passionate about justice? Do you want to know how the world will be healed Or how darkness might be pulled back in our world when it just seems to be winning and taking more and more ground. Then Paul says, if you want that, look to the cross. There's loads of other answers for you out there. But for Paul, he says, learn to boast in the cross. Because the cross is the point of the grace reversal. The great reversal, sorry. Let me read what David De Silva, a commentator, says. Because God's own son hung on the cross to accomplish God's beneficent purposes... The cross becomes the perfect symbol for how completely upside down the world's values and operating principles are. What he's saying is that the cross shows how empty and alienating and false the balloon dog life is. Serving one another, he continues, is the path to distinction. 
You want to be raised up? Learn to serve. Obedience to God, even when it leads to utter disgrace, when it leads to the cross, is the path to eternal honor. Giving oneself away is the path to securing oneself for eternity. The cross that was meant to be a judgment upon Jesus becomes instead a judgment upon the world that placed him there. And as disgusting, as difficult as this is to look at, that's what, he's, that's what the cross says to us. That's why Paul calls it the great scandal. Because the path of life leads through death. The path to light leads through darkness. And the path, as Paul says, of becoming a new creation, of becoming someone new, of transforming, which is the vision that God has for each one of us and for our community, has to go through the cross. And so those who can boast in the cross are the people who acknowledge that there's darkness and see that the darkness is overcome by God's sacrificial love. But the finally, it's the third part, which is that we have to trade the balloon dog for the cross in our lives. And that means acknowledging that we want the balloon dog. Acknowledging that our lives are just moving towards this. And look, I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm not talking about that person in your life who's like always buying new cars and upgrading their house. I'm talking about us. Like, our lives are a balloon dog. This is us. This is, you know, we're Mandy Moore and Milo, whatever that dude's name is. This is us, okay? We are the people that I'm talking about here. I'm your pastor, or some of your pastor, and I will just tell you, my dog, my, my, my dog, my life is moved towards the balloon dog life. I don't have to do anything. It's just the tide of our world. It's the river we just are boating, all boating in. And so we need to acknowledge that our lives are geared in that way. And I would say this from my perspective, the scandal of the North American church is that we have Jesus, you know, we have cross necklaces and Jesus chains, but our hearts are actually tethered to the balloon dog. That's, we have to acknowledge that this is where we want, what we want. It's called confession. That's what it is. And then we have to learn to exchange that balloon dog life that vision, that dream for the cross, which means ultimately decentering ourselves and allowing us to get ourselves, our lives to get caught up in a different story, in a different current on the river, which doesn't revolve around us. You know, the balloon dog life, if you've been with us, is ultimately a fuzzy set life, which puts my story at the center of the world and asks God and Jesus to come bless. Come bless me. Make my life smooth. Make my life fun and shiny. The cross is in a completely different picture of life, where it puts Jesus' story in the center and it says, no, no, my life will now revolve around this. And Paul says that will be foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, but just maybe, he says, just maybe if we put that story in the center of our lives, that people will see light in darkness. Or as Byung Chul Han says, maybe if we put Jesus' story at the center, maybe if we put a bigger story, we'll actually see beauty. And this becomes the pattern of our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the invitation of Paul saying to us. It's, if we want to believe in Jesus, our lives need to be patterned after his life. And the pattern of his life is dying and rising. Dying and rising. That's the, that's the invitation for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Now this has all been... Um, let me just close by saying this. This has maybe been pretty theoretical. Let me just give you one example of how I see this playing out in our community. One of the things that uh, I, I felt called to do when I became the pastor is to pray for our, our church family. So I pray for us regularly, and if you're a regular attender here, I pray for you and, and your family regularly. And I'm very honored that people uh, often will share their requests with me. They'll tell me, like, what, here's what I want you to pray with me for. 
And so I always do pray for you for whatever you ask. But here's what I've noticed. Behind the prayers and the visions of our lives, like prayer is one of those places where we, we see what we, our stories actually are. How could God actually help me if he was here? Here's what I want God to act. And I just say with all, I, I pray for you in everything that you ask me to pray. But one of the things I notice, one of the stories that I notice is that the prayer requests that we give are often, God, help me have a smoother life. It's going bumpy. Can you get in here and smooth it out? My, my life is not as shiny as I want. My life is not as fun. And our lives are geared towards that vision of life. And so our vision is that God could pull us towards the balloon dog life. And so you enlist me for some reason to try to help you. Maybe I'm more spiritual, a little more access. I'm a little higher to the sky. My office is way up there. So maybe I have a little more access to God. I don't really know. But this vision, that's the vision of our lives. It's, that's what Paul's talking about here. We're boasting. And so I always pray for you. But I, I'll just be honest with you. I also sneak in a prayer. That in the difficulties that you're going through, in the places where life is not, is not smooth but bumpy, that you'll also see God's hand reaching from the other way. And that hand will always have nail holes in it. Because it's the hand of Jesus reaching from the cross. To say, maybe in this difficulty of your life, maybe in these places that are hard, maybe in the places where darkness looks like it's taking over, maybe that's exactly the place where a, a, a God who died on the cross can minister to you. And maybe I'd, I'd, I would love a balloon dog life for you, but it's just too small. Because, as Paul says, what I'm actually going after here is that you become a new creation. Not that you just become a person with more balloon dogs, but that you actually, your life would resemble the God of the universe. That's the vision that God has for every person here. I don't, even if you, if you don't follow Jesus, if you do, that's the vision of life that he has. And so I pray along with you that you would see the hand of God reaching out the other way. And that this would become the pattern of our lives, the pattern of our church, of dying and rising, that in some way the light of Christ may shine out in the darkness, into our city, into our homes, into the lives of our friends and neighbors. What might it look like if we took on that pattern of life? Let's close in prayer. God, we, um, we with new, renewed, I think, mentality, come and say we thank you for the cross. May we boast in it, and I confess that my life is tethered to so many balloon dogs. And instead, I pray that you would help me to see Christ, to see that you are a God who is not false or alienating, but that you invite us into a life of new creation. So may that be my heartbeat. And as we pray together, as we worship now, we ask that you would draw us deep into that story of your being a God who wants to create new people. So I pray that for myself, I pray that for each one of us, and we ask that your light may shine out in darkness from this place. Pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.